0: Good evening ladies and gentlemen uh, and welcome to the LSE uh, and in particular uh, a welcome to the LSE to those of you who are not from the LSE and who are visitors and guests. Uh, You're very welcome. My name's Tim Newburn. Uh, I'm the head of the Social Policy Department here at the LSE and also a jobbing criminologist uh, and a jobbing criminologist who one of whose interests over the years uh, for quite some time now has been policing. Uh, And so it's with particular pleasure that uh, I accepted the invitation to chair this evening's public lecture. Um, Just a word about these lectures, first of all, uh, tonight's lecture is held under the auspices of British government at LSE uh, and is part of their Health of Our Institutions series Uh, and I'd urge you very much, uh, if you haven't already done so, to look at the British Government at LSE website, uh, look at the forthcoming lectures and events, and I'm I'm told, though I won't reveal the identities, that there are a whole series of uh, fascinating speakers lined up which haven't been published as yet, uh, including th- as well as some who, who aren't, the identities of whom are known, but uh, to look at the website regularly, if you would. Um, this event is being recorded, uh, and we hope uh, in due course that there will be A podcast uh, available. Um, Tonight's speaker is the Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police, Bernard Hogan Howe. Uh, He began his career in the health service uh, and joined South Yorkshire Police in the late 1970s. He worked across South Yorkshire in uniform, CID, traffic and personnel, And in 1997, he joined Merseyside as the Assistant Chief Constable Community Affairs before taking responsibility for area operations in 1999. Mr. Hogan Howard joined the Metropolitan Police Service as Assistant Commissioner in July 2001 with responsibility then for human resources. In 2004, he rejoined Merseyside Police as their Chief Constable where he introduced the total policing model. As you'll see behind me, which also provides the basis for uh, much of his talk this evening. In October 2009, he was appointed Her Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary with responsibility for London and for the National Office. And he was the lead inspector on a number of thematic reviews, including the Olympics, counter-terrorism, and serious, serious and organized crime. In July last year, he became Acting Deputy Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police Service and its latest commissioner last September. It's gr- with great pleasure, therefore, that we welcome him to the LSE this evening. Commissioner.
1: Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I'm really grateful of the opportunity to uh, speak this evening. Uh, I'm grateful for the fact that so many people took the opportunity to be here tonight. Um, I'm sure some people may agree with what I'm about to say and some people may disagree but I always think that getting involved in public debate uh, is vital Um, If it doesn't come over at all tonight, I hope to get over to some of my passion for policing uh, and keeping people safe Um, It's what's driven me for 30 odd years now Um, and from when I started, uh, I don't think I could ever imagine that I would occupy the role that I have now um, as Tim said, I started in the health service, I used to work in a histopathology department um, and I'd been there for four years before I joined the police. Uh, my first day in the police was actually returning to the hospital in which I'd worked in the laboratory uh, where I made my first arrest and it was uh, around the casualty department uh, with a, a chap who was uh, drunk and incapable uh, not something we deal with an awful lot now because they tend, generally they tend to go to the hospital um, but we did arrest him, and I was put in the back of the van to, uh, to take him to a local police station. Unfortunately, he lost control of all his functions. So I spent about 45 minutes with this guy, who well, we didn't have a very coherent conversation, um, partly because I was unable to. Uh, neither was he. Um, but it did make me wonder, uh, had I made the right choice? Um, well, I did. Uh, I, uh, I'm very proud of the, the job that we do. We don't always get it right. But it's a great duty, and it's a great opportunity. Um, in terms of what I'm going to talk about tonight, it's about half an hour. Um, if that's okay for you, before I think there's an opportunity for t- questions if you'd like uh, to ask them. Uh, first of all, I'm going to talk a little about the context in which we're operating in London and across the country at the moment. Uh, secondly, I'm going to try and explain some of our ambitions. First of all, around why I've set the ambition to be the best. And secondly, uh, as Tim said, around what does this total policing idea mean, and try and explain the reasoning behind it. Then I'm just going to say a little about our present operational challenges and some of the things we face, I think, in the coming year. The great opportunity there is to talk about the things you're aware of. The great challenge we will be dealing with with all the things that we haven't even thought about yet. Uh, Then finally, I'm going to say something that is a real passion for me, (coughs) which is about communication. Tonight is about communicating with a group of people, uh, but how do you communicate with the 53,000 people in the Metropolitan Police, and how do you communicate with at least 7.5 million people who live in London and the 2 million people, it is said, visit every day. So that's uh, really what I'm going to try and cover today, and I hope that meets the needs of, uh, of, the, of the audience tonight. In terms of the context in which we're operating at the moment, I suppose the thing that affects all of us in public service, but also in commercial land, uh, is the recession. Uh, that has various direct and indirect influences on public service, uh, but it also has directing influences on the social context in which we operate. First of all, you'll know that right across the police service there will be a 14% reduction over the next three or four years in the amount of money spent on the police. Uh, 14%, many would say, is not actually a huge change. If you look at some organisations, they have to sustain a far bigger change. But of course that excludes inflation and a few other things. Um, Police inflation is slightly different. Uh, But of course what the police haven't to respond to is the fact that over the last 15 years the public sector spending on police has increased. So it's a complete vote fast in terms of what we've been used to dealing with and it will need a different leadership style uh, and a different sort of plan. The second thing that uh, we have to deal with is the fact that in a recession then often people protest more and they want to have a different debate with, uh, whether it be parliament or with local politicians, about some of the hard decisions that have to be made uh, around politics, and around public spending. Uh, the police often are caught in that interface. Sometimes they get it right. The idea is to strike the balance between rights. So the rights of people to protest with the rights of people to enjoy peaceful enjoyment of their own home, of uh, the streets, or wherever ha- they happen to be. But it does bring an extra layer of complexity. And of course here in London we get many marches uh, every year Uh, and that's not necessarily a problem. We always police it and we we have to to make sure that we we strike that right balance. But of course if the protests are very large, then two things happen. The dynamics in a crowd can be different to the dynamics of a hundred strong crowd. If you have a crowd of 10,000, the dynamics are quite different. And of course at the end of the day we do have a lot of people. We have 52, 53,000 people as I said, 32,000 of which are police officers. But of course, we we don't have a new box that we open in the event of large amounts of protest. They have to come from the existing force. That often means that we drag them from the outer boroughs, there are 32 boroughs in London, which means that we have a differential profile in terms of policing that's uh, that's within uh, the the normal policing of London if protests should change. The second uh, dynamic, uh, Ironically uh, and coincidentally, today is the change that the police authority in London uh, has disappeared. As of midnight last night, the police authority uh, went. As I was saying to Tim on the way in, uh, if tonight's lecture had been organised to coincide with that, it would have been a great strategy. I have to tell you it was a great coincidence. Um, I agreed to speak tonight uh, almost as I I got the job. Um, And the, the, um, the implementation date for the new MOPC, the Mayoral Police and Crime Commissioner, uh, was only decided within the last couple of months because as it moved through Parliament it meant that the date kept changing. So it is a great coincidence but it is also a great change. For those of you unaware the police authority uh, probably about two thirds were locally elected councillors who were selected uh, to be within, um, within the police authority uh, then there are independent members too. Well they now have gone for London. Uh, the mayor is the person who has the legal opportunity to be the the MOPC uh, but he's delegated that to a different person, that at the moment is a chap called Kit Malthouse, who will be there at least until there's an election in May. So that's quite a big change. The other 41 forces uh, in England and Wales uh, will see that change in November of this year. They've got a few moments to prepare. The City of London Police will not see that change at all. They will continue to have a police committee. Uh, but that is quite a dynamic change. Uh, we did a bit of press today and the questions were all around, well, what are the, what's the balance of powers? What will change? I think the thing that's very clear is that the MOPC, the elected person, is responsible and elected for holding me under police to account, and the Commissioner or the Chief constable in the rest of the country will be about delivering operational policing. There's always a debate about where that line gets drawn, and I'm sure we'll have a, there may be questions about it tonight, I'm sure we'll have interesting debates during the year. But whatever happens, that certainty exists from the Government, uh, from the Mayor, and of course uh, in terms of statute. The third context in which we're operating is that the Met has gone, undergone a huge amount of change at the senior level over the last 18 months. Uh, you have all have read the press. Uh, my predecessor was very ill uh, for a, a long period of time. Uh, his deputy was acting in his absence. Um, then succeeding uh, that, there were then issues about phone hacking. But the bottom line was that the whole team moved on. So we've now lost a commissioner. The deputy commissioner has now uh, retired. We've got two new assistant commissioners, and I won't bore you with all the detail. It seems to me that some days, strategic management of any organisation hardly matters. The people get on with the job regardless of what the people at the top do. But I think if you see sustained uh, uncertainty over a long period of time, then it does matter. The Met is a big beast. We're given three and a half billion pounds of the public's money. We employ 53,000 people. We provide a service, as I said earlier, to seven and a half million. So to provide more certainty and consistency is something that we need to aim for. And I think the trick is not to confuse Uh, certainty and stability with inertia, because there are many things to do and I don't want to be associated with stasis and just the status quo. But we do have to give more stability to our organisation and also obviously to the people in London. We have a coalition government, as you're aware of, so that causes uh, debate and tensions within the government, I'm sure, but also in terms of some of the things that we've taken for granted in the past. So that really broadly is the context. Uh, I'm sure there are many other things I could have talked about, but they're the things that probably are on our uh, major hit list. So within that context, uh, I wanted to set an ambition which I thought was bold and attainable. All I've said is I want the Metropolitan Police to be the best in the country. Um, You could argue all day about how you measure it, and I'm quite happy to say a little later about how we might measure it. Uh, But my principal point is this. First of all, I think it's an honourable intention I think if you're given the, a great duty and you act on behalf of the public, why would you strive to be anything less than best? So it's about an honourable intention. The second point for me, in most public services, but particularly the police, there is no competition. If you have a crime, you're a victim of a crime, then you cannot go to anybody other than the Metropolitan Police in London. And if that is the case, it seems to me that with a lack of competition, we have to strive continually to challenge ourselves about the quality of service and the delivery of what we're given this duty to perform. So if we don't do it, who would do it? Because there's no one out there who can react to your robbery or burglary and we, we it seems to me, need to have that uh, great opportunity to continually compete with ourselves. The third thing I'd say is that I don't know how to strive to be 23rd out of 43. I think you can strive to be best but I think incremental change rarely drives sustained uh, performance improvement. And finally in this area, just say that one of the things I've set as our, some of our starting uh, lineup of, of priorities is first what we've called the three C's. Anybody who's working in an organisation will know that you know, there's always a, some alliterative point that is made to try and encourage people to hear what you're saying. The three C's are simply cut crime, cut costs, and to continue to develop our culture. I'll say about develop culture because for me I made, it was a conscious decision not to change culture. I've, I've experienced, I don't know if any of you have, organisations that come to you and say, right, well, your culture's bad, I'm going to change it. my experience is that often what happens is people become defensive and stop listening well I want them to keep listening so I think we can always develop our culture no matter who we are and I include myself in that but I think there are great opportunities to continue to develop a culture and in terms of where I think in the past we've managed to make great success and in Merseyside we achieved quite a lot in terms of cutting crime and cutting costs and getting more police officers on the street Um, the short term hits were about the cuts in crime what we could do tactically to improve that the long-term benefits were revealed as a real result of developing the culture. In that case, we're 7,500 people. Here, as I said, we're 53,000. I'll say something under the communication about I think we, what we need to do uh, to achieve that. If we are going to drive performance, then one of the things that we do need to do is have a good performance culture. What I'm not in the business of doing, and never have been, is just counting dots on graphs for the sake of it. For me, if you have... 10% less crime, it means the number of people who are less victims. It means there are less robbers, less burglars, or whatever else you have to be counting. So it's not to confuse numbers with real life. It's about measuring real life in a way that people understand and then doing something about it. But it seems to me that if you don't know what's happening, either in terms of outcome, how many robberies were there, or in terms of what you're doing as an input, what are you doing to actually make sure that happens less, or if it happens you help people more, <laughs> then how do you know what's happening unless you count? The trick is used to make sure that it's not bureaucratic, bureaucratic and it means something in terms of the job you're doing. If you count numbers for the sake of it, it seems to be unlikely to achieve much difference, and the people you lead are unlikely to support you. So there is a trick in making sure you count the right things and that you do it in the right order. If that's what is it, about being best, then uh, my other point is about what we call total policing. Um, I'm old enough, and there's probably not many in the audience, to remember an old Dutch football team uh, that used to play a really flexible form of football um, that form of football, uh, somebody pointed out actually recently, didn't win the World Cup but I thought it was pretty good um, but they, they, their idea was that if you're a fallback, you are a could work you could work at the front and if somebody you know, went out of position then somebody else could fill in um, and it all struck me that, that was a really, you know, it was a simple plan everybody knew their part in it but if somebody else wasn't available someone else helped I suppose that was one thing when I came to think about well if you get a great opportunity I think to lead an organisation what is it you stand for? What is it that drove you to join this organisation that the good parts of the culture you want to make sure that they can help support. support? I always thought that one of the great benefits of good police force or service is that in fact you work as a team. One person working alone as you know can achieve so much but working as a team you can have an incredible effect. And even with 53,000 people, when you have 7.5 million scattered around London and all the visitors and all the complexity of London, it means that 53,000 never should nor can impose their will on the 7.5 million. They've got to work as a team and they've got to work with people to make sure that they achieve some kind of effect. So the idea was that, that total point. And the second thing is for me was to devote resources in what I would regard as a smart way so that those tactics that work you make sure you keep doing them consistently day in day out even on the days that you don't feel like it. Or even as in the police service when sadly emergencies come along and the best plans in the world don't survive contact. You know, there's, you've got all these wonderful plans on a Tuesday uh, something terrible happens and you have to devote your resources to it. So my point is have some good simple tactics that work and the strategic thing is to make sure you do them all on the same day and even if you only achieve them 80% of the time you'll have achieved them far more than if you didn't have a plan in the first place. But it does demand you have a series of tactics at work and that you manage the performance to make sure that people are delivering. Within that, we've said we wanted a total war on criminals. The idea is that we do everything that's legal, ethical and in good faith to put them on the back foot. Um, Nothing illegal, nothing aggressive. One of the things I'm proud of in Merseyside, apart from a 38% reduction in crime over a four-year period, was that at the same time we had the lowest number of complaints per officer in the country. Merseyside is quite a challenging area. Not only did we reduce the number of complaints, we also reduced the civil litigation. It wasn't about being aggressive. It was about the police doing the job in the right way and gaining the support of the public. But it wasn't about turning away and walking away when it got difficult or not doing the job to the best of our ability. The types of tactics that we've we used there and we've started here are things that can have an indirect benefit sometimes, so people don't always think that the immediate tactic works in the way that you, imagine, you might imagine. So one of the things we're pushing here is about cars having no insurance. Um, the law says that if you have no insurance, no tax, no driving license then we can take your car. If you get it reinsured or for the first time insured in some cases, or taxed or you get a license, you can have your car back. You'll still be prosecuted but you get your car back. If you've done none of those three things, you've lost your car. We can then sell that car and the money can be put back in the public purse and it can be used for crime-fighting purposes. My point is not that the motive is to get the money. The real benefit for me is that 80% of the people we take cars off which are not insured have got a criminal conviction. We are not picking on the good people who make a mistake just not insuring the car. So you're either slowing the mobility, and if they're a burglar they probably burglar a little less for the period of time they don't have a car. So that's one of the principles for which uh, we found works. We crush some of the cars, if they're not fit to be sold. Um, it's a very visible representation of what you can achieve, if only you apply yourself uh, to some of the detail. A second tactic, which was not my idea, but I thought was a good one, we had a sergeant the Wirral. Wirral is quite a nice area in Merseyside, although it has some challenging parts. Um, and the sergeant noticed that if, uh, instead of taking months and months on uh, drugs operations to do surveillance, if you got enough information to persuade a magistrate to give you a warrant, so an independent check on whether this was good and valid information, if you got the warrant, put the door in, it's amazing what you found. You got a series of criminals who actually weren't expecting you. Sometimes you found drugs, sometimes firearms, sometimes cash. <coughs> the point was you kept them on the back foot. And the test of propriety was whether a magistrate would give you the warrant and they were prepared to support that. So it wasn't whether a local officer just thought, well, I'm going to put the door in. Um, And that really had benefits beyond the most immediate. And the thing that we're saying is, number one, is we've got those tactics that can work, and I'll not talk too much tonight about things like AMPR, Automatic Number Plate Recognition. You had to do it consistently as a team right across the force area. Because if you're not careful, the challenge comes in. Well, all you're doing is displacing it. You're moving it from the Wirral, you're moving it over to Southport or or wherever. But if you do it together, the impact as a team can be significant. And the trick is to try and do some of these things together in London on the same day we started those tactics, the trick is to keep it moving forward in the future. The second part of total uh, policing was to say, sadly, we do not catch everybody who commits a crime. We detect broadly one in three of all crimes. We detect 90 odd percent of murders, but of all crimes, about one in three, and some crime types, very low percentage detections. Attacks on people's cars in the street, there's no witness, no forensics, it's very difficult to go much further with that with volume crime. Perhaps we could do more, but at the moment that's, that's how it sits. But what it means to me, for example, is that two-thirds of the people who are a victim of crime do not have the satisfaction of their case going through a court. Well, they we still need our care, they still need our support, and for me we need to do something to help them. They come to us in various guises, they always come to us a little upset and emotional about what's happened to them, sometimes they speak in a second language, sometimes they might be psychiatrically ill. Sometimes they might be just upset by the uh, the moment or they've got something happening in their life uh, of which this is the final straw. But to me, if we are totally supportive of those victims, we've got a chance to do something for them even if we can't catch the person who committed the crime. And the third leg of the uh, total uh, is to be totally professional in the first two items. So to be totally professional in the way that we fight crime and to be totally professional in the way that we support victims. If we can get that right, We've usually started to get our job um, in the right place. And the only final, which I couldn't squeeze total into, but we put it anyway, which is about technology. The police service is a great people business. I don't think we'll ever have a time when we we, we police without people. But I do think that technology is a great opportunity that we have not yet tapped. You see the pace of technological change, um, but things have come along over the last few years which I think we can invest in more and drive out better performance. So I mentioned automatic number plate uh, recognition cameras, it's a thing that drives a congestion charge, Um, it's a thing that tells you whether or not someone's driving a car that's stolen, whether a driver might have a, uh, is wanted for murder. It's something that actually can do something you or I I think can't do, because you remember lots of number plates and then tell you whether you should stop them. It's a very intelligent form of stop search and I'm going to come back to that later. But for me that is one example, and there are many, where in fact uh, technology can help us do our job. And for me, over the time, a lot of police IT, and I don't know what other organisations are in the audience, but our IT has produced lots of lists. Not detected much crime, but it's produced an awful lot of lists. So I can tell you how many burglaries there were last year, but which one did it prevent? And it seems to me automatic number plate recognition and other things can help in that bit. Uh, and we need to invest at the rate, uh, well, a different rate to, as, as we have done to date i sort to talk a little about the operational challenges. In the coming year, uh, I suppose the blindingly obvious one is the Olympics. Uh, it's going to be a great opportunity. Um, I think everybody wants to make sure that people who visit London have a great experience. It's a great sporting event. And in the way that you hope that referees, for those who watch sport, are the thing that you don't notice, uh, that would be our great, I think, our great accolade. If the police and the security systems are in place, don't get noticed, nothing goes wrong, that would be great. Um, but clearly, um, there's a risk. Millions of people watch, hundreds of millions of people watch the Olympics live uh, across the world. You have uh, hundreds of thousands of people who are going to visit the event. It's going to be a great challenge just in terms of the infrastructure uh, coping. But the bottom line is we all need to keep them safe and we need to prevent. Probably the biggest thing that we worry about is terrorists. I don't think necessarily criminal attacks are the, the issue, but we do worry that the opportunity presents itself for terrorists. And of course, it says nothing in this audience to say that both America and the UK Uh, are potential targets for certain groups of terrorists. So it's something that we need to be aware of and we need to plan. Uh, And certainly the threat assessment said that even if today there is no obvious threat against the Olympics, it's clear risk. It's no good getting in May of this year and suddenly wishing that we'd ramped up all the security as though it was the highest threat. So we have to use that lead time effectively. Uh, But it's a big change for London. Fairly small period, the Olympics and the Paralympics, but a huge amount of planning to make sure we get it right uh, there will be about 14,000 police officers, many from outside London, uh, which is a point I make about mutual aid. We, we help each other from time to time. Uh, really important that we uh, get that right. We've got the consequence of the August riots. Um, I'm not sure anybody fully understands yet exactly what happened with those riots, but terrible things. People died in London, people died across the country. Uh, any riot is an awful thing. It's when control broke down, uh, perhaps we see the worst side of human behaviour. Um, But it's vital we don't see it again. It's vital we are trying to understand what happened. Uh, Dara Singh is producing a report. Uh, We, the Met, are producing a report. We'll publish our report, but of course it will be our report, based on our evidence gathered from people talking to us. And people may say, well, actually, that's a partial inference. So we're doing our best to, you know, give objectivity. But I'm more interested, frankly, in what other reports produce in terms of their evidence-gathering. Uh, We've got the Jubilee, which is another great opportunity, uh, but quite challenging in terms, again, of policing right. We've got general counter-terrorism. We've talked about the Olympics, but, of course, as we saw with G20 uh, back in the the attacks uh, that happened in London uh, a few years ago now, it wasn't the attack on the the heads of European governments and world governments that was happening in Scotland. It was an attack in London. So, you know, they could attack anywhere, even if they don't attack the Olympics, and it may be around the time rather than at the time. And finally, I'll just say a little about gangs. Um, we said a little um, in the recent weeks um, about two, two or three things, really. One, gangs, two, youth engagement, and three, stop search. For me, there is a link. Um, we intend to announce on the 31st of January uh, a new plan around gangs, which will be a very significant investment of police resources and also local authority resources. What can we do to either, if there are people hurting other, other people, arresting them? Or on the other hand, can we help them to get out of the gang culture? Because there's no benefit for anybody in maintaining criminality. So that will be a plan that we'll announce on the 31st. But for me, there is something about stop search. And our relationship, the police's relationship with young people on the streets, um, we do see just disproportionality in terms of the stop search. And that black and ethnic minority people are stopped at a far higher rate than the white population in a way that I can't fully explain. Um, my point is that <laughs> you can ask questions, <laughs> but my points are two or threefold really. One is if that's wrong, and I think there is evidence it's not right at the minute, then what are we going to do about it? And I'm not going to stand here in front of you or others and start quoting platitudes, so we need to do things. Um, number one is I think we need to have better target to stop search. It probably means we do less, uh, and in the interaction that we have with people, we've got to have a better quality. We've got to deal with it far more professionally. But there is some evidence that uh, also we're doing more than other people in the rest of the country. Some accounted for perhaps by being London, I'm afraid not fully. And uh, there's an awful lot that's more that we can do to improve that. Uh, and it probably means doing less, but doing it smarter and with a better quality uh, in terms of the outcome. I did speak last week at a uh, at Harrow High School. Um, we have a, uh, one of the things I'll say in a second is about communication. There's a group of young people who've been selected from a 1,400 academy, 1,400 strong academy, not because they're in the same class, but because they had had interactions with the police in the past. So it's quite an interesting group, about 30 of them. they would all got a very clear uh, view of the police. All of them had been stop-searched. Uh, and I asked them how often and, and how recently. Um, we ended up having quite a discussion about what was right and wrong. For example, you know, with a 90-odd percent failure rate, 90-odd percent fail-nothing, how can you say it's a successful tactic? And I think it's a very fair challenge, and you could say, well, there's no easy answer to that. Of course, the dilemma is, is that if you find in the 7%, 200 knives, and you have no better way of finding the knives, then what are you going to do about it? Are you going to let people carry on walking around with knives and then stab each other? (laughs) Or not? Now, somebody clearly doesn't agree, but what are you going to do about it? What is your answer about stopping people carrying knives? Well, I'll answer the questions later, but the challenge is, what are you going to do about it? Because you can criticise the police all day, but what's your response? Um, the final part is about communication. I suppose one, w- this is one way of communicating tonight. But there's two things that are really vital on this. Number one is the internal. How do you communicate with 53,000 people? And first of all, convince them that what you're proposing is valuable. And number two, engage in a debate to either improve the plan or change it at <coughs> times. Um, one of my experiences is that people often say, when there's been something gone wrong, you can almost write the report from the beginning, which is, communication failed. You can think about with well, a loss of life in various uh, disasters, organisations that failed. You can always pick out something that says communication failed. For me, what a user means is that no one thought it was important enough to invest a lot of time and money in it. You anyway, know, if your diary represents the best way you can communicate with people, for me, um, within the Met then one of the things that uh, was already happening to some extent but we are every four weeks we get two or three hundred people together like this we have a debate one we give a briefing uh, but then number two is a question and answer session So there's opportunities there to either convince uh, or to, to change your own mind now we'd use the internet uh, we start to use Twitter and the vital thing for me is that one of the things that worked best in Merger's side is we picked out the leaders of the organisation and worked directly with them as the leader of the organisation, sat them in a room, and then we worked through the things that we want to change. Because if you're not careful, your organisation's hand, the supervisors, is left with people who've been doing the job for 20 years and no one had the courtesy and, the, for me, the common sense to sit down with them every so often and say, you know, things have changed a bit. All those things that you started doing 20 years ago, when you might have been selected as Sergeant, may have moved on. And then we get surprised because they become cynical, because they keep doing the same job, and no one said things have moved on. So it's vital we invest that time in training and in development, and that's something that uh, we will do even with 53,000 people, and I'd want to take a personal lead in that. And the final thing is to mention the external uh, communication. For me, number one is to have a simple message. People I don't think, and I include myself in this, I listen to the radio, I couldn't recall everything I heard on the news this morning. Perhaps you can but it seems to me you've got an opportunity if you've got a simple message to get that message over to lots of people. So the message has to be fairly simple. It has to be reiterated. And in a city of seven and a half million people, there are mechanisms to get that conversation going. They call them mass media. That's why they're there, to converse with the masses, as is the internet. So the challenge for me seems to be to get regularity and frequency of that uh, interaction. Uh, it can be by using the mass media. And it can be the other uh, thing we've started, we've only had two uh, two of the sessions up to now, but we'll have more. It's so every four weeks to go to a different part of London, hold a meeting in a borough, say, if you're not happy with the police or you just want to come and discuss things, come and meet me in this room. Uh, we're in Harrow, which was covering Brent. This um, so I think, where the, uh, the other ones were. Brent, Barnet, um, and I think it was Haringey last, uh, last week, where people did turn up. I think about 200 people turned up. They asked questions. They had some good questions, and you can't answer all of them. But it seems to me... The the very least you need to do is to be held to account, and that's one mechanism with which it can be done. We've tried tweet, but I think as one or two people have found recently, tweeting can get quite difficult to try and reduce very complicated things into simple language. And the time that you have to make that calculation is very short. It's a dangerous combination at times, but it's an opportunity that we can use. I think a bit more. But I think if you left, I was left with nothing else that uh, I wanted to get over is it seems to me that whether it be tonight, whether it be the mass media, whether it be the internet, or just the face-to-face contact, that's a great opportunity for, to be influenced and to try and influence others. Um, and I think you should have the, I think the courage at times to stand in a room with people and then see whether or not they agree with you. If they don't, then take it on the chin. But sometimes perhaps they might think you've got a point, and they may therefore be persuaded, but at least you've engaged in a contact. And even in a big city, Doing it regularly, frequently, with different networks, you will gradually uh, have some kind of dialogue, which I hope will uh, improve our decision making and my decision making uh, over the years. Um, thank you for listening so carefully. Uh, I appreciate it. I've gone on a bit. I'm now going to uh, sit down. If anybody would like to ask questions, I'm very happy to take them.
0: Excellent, thank you very much indeed. Uh, I was going to say, if you have a question, please put your hands up, but that was obviously an unnecessary instruction. Um, A couple of things, I'm going to uh, take questions in batches of, I think, three. Um, Because there are lots of people who want to to speak. Um, If when you do speak, uh, you could identify yourself uh, and let us know where you're from, that would be very helpful. But please also,
1: (laughs) I'm taking notes, by the way.
0: So. Do keep the questions, do keep the questions brief, if you would. I have one at the front here, uh, one at the side there, and at the back, at the top there. Sir, so.
2: David Lammy, MP for Tottenham. Um, there are 32,000 Met police officers, as you said. There are currently about 860 black officers in London. Part of what's happening, I think, for the Met is an issue of trust Um, because of house prices and the Met losing a lot of housing stock that it's had previously. A lot of officers currently stationed in London aren't from London and certainly don't live in London. Um, Can you say something about the way in which the retention of ethnic minority officers and just the retention of officers born and raised on the streets of Tottenham, Peckham, wherever, uh, that has stalled and what you think under your leadership the Met could do about it because it cuts to the heart I think also of the stop and search issue.
1: Uh, Tim Spear, London I read a book called Wasting Police Time blog, where the guy was uh, implying that the police spend more time on bureaucracy and form filling than being able to catch criminals so I wondered what you thought of that Thank you
3: Um, Matilda McCatron, Black Mental Health UK. Um, Commissioner, I welcome the fact that you have a passion to keep people safe and you want to be the best. One thing that's really come out um, in the wake of the Lawrence um, convictions is that amongst the UK's African Caribbean communities, um, confidence has actually been shattered. And there are two things I'd really like to get your opinion on. The first is the use of places of safety for people detained under the Mental Health Act. Um, The IPCC research shows that 50% of deaths in custody are mental health (coughs) service users, and I don't know if you could look at that. And also, the National Criminal DNA Database. Um, Currently, 77% of young black black men are profiled on it, and 27% of the entire black population are on the database compared to 10% of um, white people, and it's um, a huge issue. I know you know about the Protection of Freedom Bill, but those are two, two things I'd like you to address.
1: I'll uh, stand if you don't mind i just feel a little more comfortable first of all in terms of David Lammy's question um, I think David's right to say that although we have 32,000 officers we have about 3,000 officers from uh, black and ethnic minority background so it's not yet representative of London it's about 9.5% so I think if you look at the think London's got about 1 in 3 so it's improved from where it was but it's not yet where it needs to be there's a big challenge at the moment which is that um, if you're not recruiting, then how do you change the numbers? We're uh, we waiting to hear from the Mayor, are we going to have the same numbers of police next year? Um, are we are hopeful, but of course if we end up losing people, then it's really hard to change the mix. I suppose there's an indirect benefit of disproportionality 30 years ago, is that people who are leaving us now in retirement are disproportionately white. So we, will, we might see some change, but frankly I can't make an awful lot of it. But that's our biggest challenge. There has been a strategic change made, which I think will bear benefits in the way that you described, which is recruiting Londoners. They met over the years, um, for those who don't know, but the the profile of our community support officers and our police staff is that one in three, roughly, are from London. And therefore, you might think they are better represented. The thing is, on the police officer side, historically, when they couldn't get enough police officers, they recruited from outside London. And perhaps unsurprisingly, the pool has therefore led to a disproportionality in the the recruits. I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I think it's played a part. So a couple of years ago, what the Met said was, it for various reasons, it wanted to only recruit from two groups: police community support officers, which had a better proportionality, about one in three, and also from specials. Both of those groups tend to be Londoners. Specials because they're volunteers, and therefore they tend to police in the area they live. And community support officers because generally they have recruited from London. So what you've seen over the that two-year periods. We have seen better representation, but it's not yet perfect. The only final thing I would say on this is for me, I've argued for, both with, (laughs) I've argued with colleagues in ACPO, but also with others, that I think we should have lateral entry. Because you could have another thousand police officers, which will hopefully people would notice on the streets, but at a leadership level, if you waited for those people who are at a junior level to get through, could take 10, 20 years. And you know, you stand in front of audiences like this and others, and try and convince her, yeah, you know, Nirvana's on its way and people don't believe you. For that reason, which is one reason, but there are other ones which is just about getting good talent in, I would argue for lateral entry for police officers. So that even if you didn't start as a PC, after a period of training, you could come as an inspector, superintendent. So for me, that would be a vital change. that would, one, allow us to get talent? Because, for example, black and ethnic minorities are disproportionately represented in a positive way in graduate um, groups. So it allows us to recruit from people and other sectors which I think have better representation and are talented. Um, now, Windsor 2, which is Tom Windsor's carrying out uh, two inquiries, uh, we'll hear what he's going to say about that within the next few weeks. I'm hopeful that there will be some movement there. But to be fair, that will be about the symbolism, which is important, but not necessarily about the volume. But we remain alive to the, the opportunities for the future. Uh, Tim, you mentioned about um, you know, wasting police time. Uh, it still happens. My view is, um, there's two great drivers on the whole of the uh, bureaucracy. One is the criminal justice system. I blame no part of it, just that it's not very well connected. And that would therefore lead to my major point, which is about the IT. Remember I said RIT I thought could get better. A lot of the duplication the forms and the rest of it is because RIT doesn't collect the information we need to manage or to transmit information through to the criminal justice process, to the criminal justice system. So for me, it's one great enabler. Um, probably the, the cultural change is that we need to trust more and monitor less. But while ever we can't get that right, then I'm afraid that a lot of uh, what we see as bureaucracy often is form-filling. But the forms rarely, sadly, <laughs> are on the IT. So we end up duplication and uh, too much handwriting. So I think if we can get that right, it will be a great achievement. And my ambition for our IT is it's more iPad than the green screen. And a lot of our investments are still levers with green screens around. In a way that means that we can't transmit data and officers on the street don't get access to the data they need to do the job. So, for me, that would be a vital change. Uh, in terms of you know, the point about you know, the consequence of the Stephen Lawrence trial and the convictions within the last two weeks, about the point about mental, you know, people with mental health problems who die in police custody, we do not want to see them there. The problem is often that the health service. Often the reason they're there is because the health service contacted us because they're worried about their behaviour. Uh, sometimes they've committed serious offences so at least something has to be done to, you know, to deal with that. Um, but we still need to do more to make sure that people who are generally not accountable for their actions and are ill have a better treatment of being arrested. The sad reality I'm afraid is that in the first few minutes of an arrest you rarely know always what you're dealing with, somebody's you know, unusual behaviour may be driven by drugs, it may be driven by drink, it may just be they're angry. It may be they are psych- psychiatrically ill. The officer at the scene is rarely well-equipped, sometimes not even in the custody centre, the cells, um, still doesn't always know exactly what they're dealing with because often it's a combination of the lot. It's not just one, one issue. So I think there's something that we can do more of. I mean, one of the things we should reassure people about is that CCTV monitors all our cell areas. We have custody nurses who look after uh, both the suspects who are detained and also after the officers if they're injured. Uh, we have police surgeons who are available to come and obviously, you know, we should take people to the hospital if that's necessary. We now have life monitoring systems within the cells as well as CCTV within the cells that someone stop someone stop breathing. In some of the cells we've got an opportunity to, to act. Um, but it is a complicated area and I'm not sure there's an easy answer, but I don't disagree with your principal point. People who are ill shouldn't be in the criminal justice system, but we're at the acute end of the market. We don't always have the benefit of a 28-day assessment. Um, You made the point about the DNA database. Um, I suppose it's a little difficult for us. I suppose we put into the system two different uh, samples. One is from the people we arrest, and one is from the scenes of the crime we investigate, and then we try and match the two. Um, So uh, if there is disproportionality there, and you you make the point, I I couldn't argue to you statistics because I just don't know at the moment. But I'm sure there's over-representation, but you see it throughout the system whether through the courts, through the prisons, etc., cetera. Um, but I'm not sure whether or not we're taking disproportionately amount of DNA because we take DNA from everybody we arrest, and then we in turn charge the state the system.
0: Thank you. Uh, question in the middle at the back there, if I may, first. And here at the second row. And here on the, on to the fourth row.
3: Thank you, Um, I'm Helia from UCL. I was wondering if you could um, talk about um, your views on whether there's a link between crime rates and perceptions or fear of crime, because I'm not sure about the statistics, but my understanding is that crime's been falling in London, but that the fear of crime hasn't reduced along with it.
0: Thank you. Uh,
4: Hi, uh, John Alsop, first year undergraduate here at LSE. You briefly alluded in your speech to uh, the new focus, I believe, of Operation Trident on uh, combating gang uh, criminal behaviour. Um, I read a really interesting uh, article in The Guardian a couple of months ago with Karen McCluskey, who um, has seemingly had a really, really um, positive programme in Glasgow, which has really significantly reduced gang violence. Uh, What sort of aspects, if any, are you going to take from that in your approach to the problem?
3: Hi, um, I'm um Sherelle. Sociology Student and Anti-Raising Officer the of Student Union. Um, you mentioned that you couldn't explain or couldn't fully explain why Stop and Search happened disproportionately to certain communities and people laughed, and I don't know whether to laugh or cry. Just in case you don't know, if you're a black man, you're 30 times more likely to be stopped and searched in London compared to a white male. Now, as the Met Commissioner, I think you have a duty to at least explain why certain communities are over <laughs> policed
1: Okay. Um, in terms of the, uh, the point uh, I'm sorry I didn't catch the woman's name Who's from UCL Hennier. Hennier. Uh, it was just that the link between crime rates and fear of crime is not well established uh, so it seems as though even when crime goes down people remain frightened of it the various explanations for that of course recorded crime doesn't capture everything but even when the recorded crime and the British Crime Survey which is an anonymous survey of the amount of crime around goes down it still seems that fear of crime can go up um, no one really understands that exactly, uh, because, but there are many things that play a part. Apart from your personal experience, it also depends on whether, what the media report and how they report it. Uh, it can be that single incidents uh, have a disproportionate effect. And I suspect if there are criminologists in the room, they will know that um, the answer to one or two of the questions I'd now ask, which is of the people who are arrested, how many are charged, how many get convicted in the criminal justice system? If I ask that question in a public forum, people often say, well, about 10% get convicted, 50%. The answer is about 80%. People often think that the criminal justice system doesn't work. And yet the prison population has gone from 40,000 to over 80,000 within the space of about 10 years. Well, let me just finish. But You see, the difference between you and me is I allow others to finish the question and the response. Of the 40-odd thousand, whether or not what I was going to go on to say, had I been allowed to, was that whether you regard it as a positive or a negative, you can hardly say that a system is failing if if the thing it was intended to do, which was to test in a court what was going to happen and whether or not prison was the right outcome, there must be something working there because 80-odd thousand people end up in prison. Now you don't agree, all right, I understand. But those people got arrested, they got charged. The vast majority of them pleaded guilty. So they accepted the guilt. And then the system put them in prison that kept them there. Despite that, if you talk to people around London around the country, they would tell you the criminal justice system often they think doesn't work. Well, there is some evidence that it might. CPS is charging, police are arresting, courts are convicting, and the prison system is keeping. So my point is, no matter how many facts you have, it doesn't mean to say that people will believe you. Um, And I'm not sure exactly what that means. But what you do see is that in the, the recorded crime stats and the British Crime Survey, crimes come down. But you're quite right, the confidence levels have not necessarily uh, increased as a direct result. Uh, John made the point about uh, Trident and you know Karen McCluskey's work. Uh, Karen actually worked in the Met for a while as well. Um, and her, together with some other people who work in Strathclyde, have done some really good work which has actually both been tested in America and in Britain. And the two strands of the, I think work if they 're done together, because that first of all, there's enforcement around gangs, so that if you target them and with the tactics that work but monotonously regularly and just keep doing it, it can have an impact, but only if you provide that alternative I mentioned, that diversion reactivity too. So if someone decides that they want to get a better life or certainly a life away from crime, they have to have an opportunity so it 's not giving them a special favor. Is trying to make sure they don't get involved and hurt people as well as themselves. So the two things done rigorously and together with partners can really make a difference. So that's the thing that, on the 31st of January, we'll be announcing more of. Um, but it is along those two, perhaps simple but hard to do lines, um, and that shows it works. You you never get rid of cr- crime. You never get rid of all gangs, but you can show that you can have an impact, particularly in the areas where they are hurting people. And you know, whether it be knives, it be guns. Uh, that's a critical thing across London and we've got to do more about it. In terms of the you know the question that was, or the point that was made about the disproportionality, I don't know if I agree your numbers but I'll not argue because certainly the evidence I, information I have is that you're four times more likely to be stopped on a section one search and eight times more likely on a section sixty. The distinction being a section one is the one where you stopped in the street for a reason and a section sixty is when an order is being put in place by an emergency inspector or a superintendent if there's been a sustained problem in a local area. We could argue all day about the figures but there's a disproportionality. There are, the reason I said I can't fully explain it, I can give you all sorts of reasons about street populations and about the fact that somebody like me spends my night at home on the whole unless I'm here. There's a different population when we tend to stop search. So there are different numbers compared to the census. Um, but at the end of the day, I'm not going to stand here and defend it because there are too many people getting stopped who are innocent and don't deserve a stop. They did nothing wrong. Well, let me, let me just finish. And then it's happening too repeatedly. I think one of the reasons is that we don't have the right intelligence to identify everybody that we see on the street. So sometimes if you know someone that's been previously been caught with a knife or someone who is threatening people or somebody who the local community said we're really worried about them carrying knives or their brothers said it, sometimes people will tell us, we are not got enough intelligence to actually, out of 7.5 million people, this person tonight is the person we want to find. Now one of the things that we want to do in the future is to say to people in the way that Crime Stoppers does, if you've got intelligence about a person, give us a name, give us who's carrying the knife, we're going to find them. We haven't got those systems in place. So often you see a less intelligent approach overall and I think we need to get better at that. I'm not going to duck that question. Partly about training, partly about our systems, but mainly I would argue about identification of people who should be stop searched because one of the options that certainly someone like me has got is say I'll tell you what will stop it will just stop stop search and it goes back to somebody laughed up there but if the reality is then that people walk the streets with knives and guns I'm not sure who's better off so it seems to me better that we try and improve the system not that we stop it Um, but I think a large part of it as far as I can see and the other option is of course that, that people believe we're prejudiced and we only stop some people by colour now if that's their perception, it's their reality, so we've got to do something about that too. So I hope you will see that in the coming weeks, we'll have a better system. But I know that it's people in my role who've been making that promise for many years. So you'll have to test me as well by the results. But I hope in the, uh, the proposals we bringing forward, you'll see not only it's a strategic change, but it's a tactical one. And for me, you can have all the wonderful strategies in the world, but tell me how you're going to do it, and now I believe you. And I hope you will accept that in some of the doing, you will be more persuaded. But it will take some time for people to believe me, because in two years' time I come back here, it's not changed. I've made a fine promise, but nothing changed. But I know I can do something about that.
0: Thank you. Uh, one at the front, here, and there. Some competing microphones. Okay. One, uh, one at the back, and then one right by you. Commissioner. you hear lost.
1: Have another go, is it? Can you hear me now? Yeah. A camera, I can't see you. Where? where you wave? Right. Oh, sorry, right. Okay. Sorry.
2: Commissioner, my name is uh, Sir Khan. I'm a councillor in Middlesbrough. Often your predecessors have been caught up in the politics of the day with the local government and with the previous and the current government. How would you plan to keep politics and policing separate? Uh, Thank you. Uh, John Neum, my question is this. uh, There are huge expectations of your force. I mean, the uh, Policing Olympics uh, this summer is an obvious example. And also, at the same time, we're talking in terms of uh, of cuts in public expenditure. My question is quite simply, how do you strike the balance? How do you strike the right balance? Thank you. Um,
4: Good evening, Commissioner. Up here. Thank you. Yep. Uh, Could you
0: introduce yourself? Yes,
4: sorry. Um, My name is William Wong. Um, You mentioned gangs a number of times tonight. Uh, Recently, there was a 40-page research report published by The Guardian and the LSE called Reading the Riots. In there, specifically, they asked a number of rioters, what do you think of the term gangs? And somebody was quoted as saying, i just paraphrase, The biggest gang out there is the police. And just a minor second point. I don't know whether you saw the play The Riots, which was at a tricycle when recently moved to Bernie Grants. In there is a verbatim political theater, so they're using all these interview material. Intense hatred, I'm quoting, for police in uniforms was featured heavily again and again. I'd just like to know how you're going to respond to these, because even if you say you do disagree,
0: perception becomes reality. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. That's obviously, <laughs> that, la- that last one was obviously my planted question.
1: <laughs> right. Um, in terms of the uh, your gentleman, the councillor from, uh, from Middlesbrough, um, I, I mean, I'd argue that, in fact, politics and policing have lived side by side for a long time. Um, Anybody who thinks that there weren't politics involved in 1984 in the miners' strike, and I could go on and, and list a few more. Um, politics is always around. Uh, I mean, politics, I think it seems to me, that it's a democratic opportunity to influence the way things happen, is that's, that's broadly what it's about. So, I mean, the people will want, as people in this room want, to influence the way the police work. So there will be that need. And it seems to me that's a legitimate purpose of politics. Um, I suppose you've seen from time to time when that's veered too far. So I think where people are agreeing, in the old system and in the new system that you know we've just embarked on in London, is that no one's arguing that politi- politicians should get involved in individual decisions about individual operations, uh, about who should be arrested, who shouldn't. That's where I think you know I think that that area is fairly clear cut. Uh, but you know there has to be political discourse. I mean, you know, if you. If you went back to when I came to the Met in 2001 for the first time, the Metropolitan Police had about 26,500 police officers. Today, as I said earlier, about 32,500. That increase happened in about three to four years. That's a huge amount of money. You ought to get money if some politician said, actually, there you are, that's the money. That's the people's money, and you're going to get it. So it seems to me that you know, there can be some very positive outcomes of political influence. The police are challenged about various things. Laws change, things move on. So it seems to me that you have to have that. What nobody wants to see, I think, is where police operations are directed in that way. But at the end of the day, you know, there's nearly 60 million people in the UK, there's 40-odd million people in England and Wales, uh, and nobody's going to allow the police to just do what they want. Um, so therefore, whether it be the courts, whether it be politicians, there will be a constant debate. Uh, and the trick, I think, is to make sure that there's influence exerted and not direction and control in individual operations. But it is a constant challenge uh, for everybody involved, and for police to make sure they listen, for politicians to make sure they don't interfere at a more operational level. Um, but I think on the whole that, that debate gets managed in this country pretty well. Um, in terms of the point about huge expectations and striking the right balance, um, my point to our officers and our staff is always that, you know, we, you've got an impossible task in a way. Um, you know, there, are t- there are lots of people. You would always argue for any public service, whether it be a health service or anyone else will argue for more. So you end up in a form of rationing, if it's health it's rationed by time, the police sometimes it's rationed by time, Uh, we don't end up doing everything for everybody at the right time. We try to deal with the life threatening immediately and then frankly we prioritise after that. Um, So I think that's the way that we try to do that, Um, I suppose there's two things, you have to do the routine routinely to a high standard, then from every so often you get some extraordinary challenges. Uh, we've seen many of those this year, there will be more to come. Uh, but at the end of the day, you've still got your 32,500 cops. Uh, and you, if you're not going to recruit someone in 24 hours, so you've got to keep them flexible. Uh, and although in this audience, by the sound of it, I may not, I may struggle to win this uh, this argument, but I'd argue that police service are incredibly flexible in the things we ask them to do. They're often criticised as being the public service of last change, if you like. Um, but in the recent, recent public service uh, strikes, which we saw, uh, the ambulances in the city uh, ran out. Well, there was at least one other emergency service who couldn't help, and it was the police who actually put 80 ambulances out within a very short period of time. Officers who had some training took on a huge amount of risk. Uh, you imagine you are going to a childbirth or you go into somebody who's having a cardiac arrest, and you're not trained as a paramedic, and they died in your care, how would you feel? So I think, you know, we, we are not perfect. We are sometimes too traditional. But I think you know, we've got an incredibly flexible group of people. And I said it earlier, you know, what was the spirit that I wanted to in, have in the organization I led? It was the spirit, the best of the culture, not the worst, but the best of the culture that you know, I, I joined, which was there is an incredible flexibility. They take on things that you never paid or trained them for. They often will not get the respect of anybody because people can be as prejudiced against the police as the police can be prejudiced against others. But on the whole, and I'm not blind to their failings, they're a pretty flexible group of people. And when everybody else is walking the other way, they're prepared to walk towards a problem. And sometimes they create a problem and, you know, it's not a perfect world. But I am proud of what they achieve most times uh, in what can be a very, very demanding uh, scenario. Uh, and, you know, we can have a very clinical debate here in this room. But Harpers ten tonight out on that street, there was another type of debate going on which is not that clear cut. Um, so they'll not always get it right. But I, deserve, I think I'd have the right to defend them when they're trying to do the right thing, even when. They sometimes will get it wrong. Uh, William's question, which was about um, the reading the riots, of course, what many people, and I think William acknowledged this in his question, was, of course, the first part of the LSE survey was about talking to the rioters. So we did it sequentially, and I know there are other things to come. The trouble is, I think we're doing it sequentially, and this is a challenge to the LSE, which there are many members here tonight, is that sequentially, not everybody who hears the findings of the first report understood it was a partial view from one group of people involved in the riots. And I think that wasn't necessarily the most comprehensive way of giving that information. Um, I respect the view of the people who were in that that group who were surveyed, but of course, as we know, 70 to 80% of the people who were in the riots who were arrested had previous criminal convictions. We're not always talking about people who have an impartial view entirely of just on what happened on that night. And I think that at least needs to get played into the mix in any subsequent debate about some of the findings in this very important area. And the only second point, point you made the point about the big gang, and I'll, we'll take that on the chin, um, but I think what I would like to get over, uh, I was talking to someone today who'd had a, now he's an academic, but had a, he's a black guy who had a chequered, by his own admission, a chequered criminal history at the beginning, was that I think we will get it wrong if we try and use language that categorises all gangs and gang members as the same group of people. It's not about uh, branding, it's not about talking to people as though they're inanimate objects. For me it is about recognising that members of gangs can be influenced. We've got to do something that recognises their individuality as well as the effects they're having. Uh, They say, don't they, they think in conflict, there are seven stages. It starts where we disagree and it ends where there's a war. But along that spectrum we stop listening to each other about stage four you say something to me and I say something like yeah well you would say that wouldn't you because that's that's just what you think isn't it in fact I haven't got a clue what you think but we've got to a stage where we imagine we know each other's motives it seems to me if we get the language and the communication wrong with the gangs one they won't hear and number two is it will misrepresent what we're about to do so it's quite it's it's not that straightforward a task but I think if we think about it carefully we can get it right because I think people who are involved in criminality often don't know where way out. They're as trapped as some of their victims. They don't know how to leave gangs without getting attacked. They don't, know how to go. they don't know how to go and live in another area. They get pigeonholed into certain places in gangs and they just don't know how to leave it. They're going to the same pubs, the same cafs. Uh, so how do they get out of this, this place? Because they may not have the academic qualifications of people in this audience and they probably won't have the resources. So they carry on doing the same thing they've always done So to get into that mix is quite an interesting task. We can do the enforcement, and in a way that's the easy bit. But I think the harder bit is the communication with them, and then provide an opportunity to say, if you're listening, and if you think you want to stop offending, then talk, and let's see what we can do about it. But we do have to apply some pressure to make them listen sometimes.
0: Right, time is marching on. We've got four microphones, so we've certainly got time with the... If the Commission is happy with this, to take one more round of questions. So let's try and use all four mics if we can. So one here, uh, one in the red shirt at the back, and then uh, right next to you there. And then finally, who have I been missing out? Uh, so chat there in the second row. <laughs> oh. Pass the microphone along and if you can do the question quickly, let's, let's, we'll do the extra one, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So, I can't even now, I can't remember where I started. <laughs> Catch. Um,
3: Catherine Hall, LSE. I have a question on how Londoners view their police service, in particular the, um, the confidence they have in the police. The first part of the question is, what do you think is the practical importance of having the confidence of the public? And we know there's large parts who have high levels of confidence and there's parts where it's broken. And secondly, what do you think your organisation can do to gain confidence amongst those who currently have very low levels or none of it?
5: Hi. Commissioner, down here. Thank you. you. Hi. Uh, My name's Jack. I'm a political theorist from an institution other than this one. Um, (laughs) I'm... (laughs) I'm kind of curious, um, so you talked about the impact of the recession on policing uh, and the likelihood of increased protest uh, under under an economy undergoing a recession. You talked about a balance between the right to protest and the right of people uh, to go about their lives unmolested. So we saw uh, recently, I think, uh, the first manifestation of total policing in a public order context, which is probably the student demonstration on November the 9th, uh, where we saw the erection of barriers in the street, uh, a demonstration entirely surrounded by police, uh, stopped every 10 minutes or so, funneled down back streets away from any public vision whatsoever. We then saw on November the 30th the erection of steel barricades in Trafalgar Square, uh, confiscation of placards. So my question for you is, is this what The right to protest and the right to dissent looks like under Total Policing. Good evening, Commissioner. Um, Uh, I'm a crime analyst working with uh, different local authorities in London. Um, I guess my my question is around uh, intelligence (coughs) and having intelligence led policing resources in terms of these agencies
0: which support the police? For instance, hospitals sharing information about um, sudden victims and this uh, kind of intelligence. Is this the sort of work that you see as a priority? Sorry, I was actually pointing the man behind you, but not to worry about <laughs> With the
1: microphone. Good evening. Uh, my name's
2: Jim Craig Gray, and like you, I'm a former histopathologist. Um, my
1: question is about Bobbies on the Beat. Um, you quite often see a couple of police officers walking down the street together or a policeman and a a police officer and a community support officer together appearing to be chatting to each other. Why can't they be on opposite sides of the street, perhaps 50 yards apart? I can see for safety reasons they need to be within hailing distance of each other, but it would almost double the apparent police presence and also make them more aware of what's going on on both sides of the street. Perhaps there's a simple answer.
0: Uh, I shall attempt to point at the right person.
2: Uh. Um, I think I'm probably the only person in the room that's contractually obliged to refer to you as sir uh, because I'm a serving Met officer, uh, as you are. Um, And I'm sure I'll get a great reception, having said that now, once I leave the building. Um, (laughs) What I wanted to ask, sir, is um, how we harness this level of debate, this level of engagement, this level of involvement that all the people in this room uh, have with what we do and how that can really translate into ways in which we can actually change frontline policing for the better.
0: Thank you. Could you just... <laughs> Thank you. you Checks on the, the post. If you could pass the microphone uh, and then we'll have to make this the last one, I'm afraid.
5: Hello. Um, I'm Hello. Liam. Um, Could you just explain to me why you've undertaken this strange exercise of rarefying abstracts such as crime? For example, your war on crime rhetoric that you um, like to wheel out. Um, Is this an attempt to abstract away from criminality within your own police force, such as the 333 deaths in police custody in the last 13 years? I'm sorry if I got this figure wrong because they've increased since the last time it was reported.
1: Yeah, no, I'm going to start with that one because I'd, I've heard that figure a lot but I don't think it's accurate and it's not accurate because not that many people died in police custody and of course it's confusing two things it's confusing people who die in police contact which might be when a police vehicle is going to a, uh, an emergency and someone dies in a collision with deaths in police custody so if you're going to ask me and I can't tell you this minute what, exactly what the figure is let me, just, let me just finish, I'll listen carefully to what you said thank um, you but I think we need to be accurate about the figures. There's the very few people in London died in police custody last year, and I don't have the numbers with me. But you're talking about one or two, not about hundreds. Sorry, and I
0: think you're wrong, but my question was actually
1: whether sorry, whether can we I'd like to clarify the question yeah, go go on. On. Go on. I think you're wrong. But why, my question was actually whether this is an exercise in abstracting away from All criminal. Right, well, I quite have to go on to that, that's what I was going to go on to, but I'm challenging you about your facts, and I don't agree but with you. I haven't got the uh, alternative facts, so I'm not sure you can do that. Yeah, all right, but you, neither of you substantiated your facts either. And the same figure is trotted out, but without the substance. So I am going to challenge it. Um, we're going to end up having a sterile debate, because neither of us has got the numbers. Um, but I think, in terms of, it's, it, I think it's a nonsense to say that we'd, we're doing that because you know, we're talking about a total war on crime to detract from criminality in the police. Um, it's just not the case. The motivation behind it, because if that was the case, why would I do it in Merseyside and why are we doing it here? It's not to do with that at all. It is, to be doing with be, it is to do with giving a clear mission to the police. And for me, often it's got confused over the years where people thought they was social service. And yet when people turn to them, when t- people turn to them to stop antisocial behavior, tonight, not in three weeks' time, who want a burglar catching tonight, or somebody who's stabbing them, they want the police to respond. So that's the motivation. I can't talk about other people. It's nothing to do with detracting from the police. If there are officers who are criminal and they're hurting people or stealing things or they're corrupt, they need arresting and locking up. I can guarantee that in this uh, room here, we have more people dedicated to investigating public complaints overtly and covertly (coughs) and do arrest officers and they do get sacked and they do go to prison. There's there's, there's quite a lot, actually, each year. Well, again, you know, I mean... Well, if you just let me—if you just let me finish—you you can all shout out various facts that are not necessarily relevant. But my, but my point is, my point is, my point is, is that we do take it seriously. Do we get it right all the time? No. But in each of the individual cases that we could go through, it's easy to shout out something that may be worthy of attention, but it's harder to have a debate. So, therefore, on another occasion, quite have to do that. I can only give my honest response uh, at the moment. In terms of the other people who asked questions, um, the point about, uh, I think it was Catherine from the LSE, what what is the practical benefit from having confidence? The principal one is the one that I talked about at the beginning, which is that with 53,000 people, of which only 32,000 police officers, then you cannot impose your will on the public, so you have to work with consent and with support. And if people didn't support us, they wouldn't ring us every night and have six million telephone calls for help. And if they didn't think we did a good job and sorted things out, they wouldn't ring at that rate. The the other reason it's vital is that, of course, what we need is, we cannot solve crime. We can't just guess exactly who we should go for in terms of crime. There's only three ways to catch criminals. Number one is you catch them doing it. Number two is that you have forensic evidence. And number three is someone tells you who did it. And it's in the latter category that we don't have public support who do in large numbers tell us who commits crime, then we wouldn't get anywhere. Well, clearly we are making arrests, we are, as I said earlier, under challenge, Uh, we have had success. But, of course, we do have informants, we have members of the public who tell us what happened, we have victims who tell us what happened, we're able to actually make progress uh, in many, many criminal cases. But I think we're only able to do that if we can show that we act reasonably most of the time, if we get it wrong, we try our best to go back and put it right afterwards. I think the best way of trying to get confidence in those groups of society who don't trust us at the moment is to just keep working hard at trying to improve and trying to get it right um, and acknowledging if we have not got it right and coming up with a better plan and keep going back. Uh, there's no public service in this country or anywhere, I think, that couldn't say that it's perfect or would say it's perfect. So therefore, we've always got an opportunity to improve and I'll, while I'm here, we'll always listen and if you're not got it right, we'll try our best to come up with new things and new ways uh, to do things. Um, Jack made the point, uh, which is about the, uh, the various student marches. He got a good round of applause for this total policing about stopping protest. It's not. But what you can't see either, if you remember Jack, from the previous year, was that when a protest got out of hand, is a building got invaded and people were at risk. Yes! Now, some people might think that's a good idea. Well, let's come into your house as well. Let's, let's come into your business but, but let, me just, let me just finish which is that people have, have got a right to protest and we did nothing in the policing of the two marches that you mentioned to stop that protest but what we did stop is obviously the opportunity for people who might, and there were people in the crowd who did want to cause either harm to property or to people we made sure that we stopped them doing that now you may I say no but in thousands of people who are protesting nobody really knows exactly what they're going to do and as we saw in the riots, if a crowd gets out of hand, you cannot restore order very easily. So the main thing is to make sure that they're policed properly and appropriately according to law, but not that they get out of control. So therefore nobody's... Let me just finish. No. You see, what what you're demonstrating is that you don't like other people's points of view, so you try and dominate. (laughs) No.
0: No, no. The the very thing is... Excuse me. can Can I please... Can I please ask you to let the Commissioner finish?
1: Yeah, well, you, what you're showing is that you, you don't like other people's point of view and you shout down. Fine, if that's the, wo- if that's the sort of sterile debate you want, I, I don't mind. But I'm trying to tell you that, first of all, we will respect the law and we will protect protesters, but we won't allow them to disrupt other people's Protestant life. To ladies and gentlemen. Well, but you've got your point of view, but I'm not going to agree. In terms of the final point which you made, I think was made, was about, sorry, there were two others. One is about the sharing of intelligence. The gentleman who I didn't catch his name because. I couldn't quite hear, I couldn't quite hear because you haven't got the mic. Um, the, uh, the point about sharing of intelligence I don't think depends on the economic situation and whether, how much resources we've got, it depends on the will of organisations to share it. Um, the health service over time has improved the way it's shared information. I think it's vital because I said earlier that there are different ways of measuring whether crime improved or you know, got more or got less, um, but people report crime to different organisations with different motivations. So people go to health service to get help because they've got a medical problem. Uh, People report crime to insurance because of motivation about compensation. But what's critical is that we share a comprehensive picture, and that has improved over the years. I'm sure it could improve again, but generally you do see that a lot of that information is shared. Uh, For example, everybody who has a car stolen, generally, always reports it stolen to the insurance company. So we do share that data, but certainly for the future it's more vital. I'm not going to take the second question because it's it's a bit unfair given that (laughs) you jumped in on someone else. Um, the only final point, which I think is about uh, Jim, who's talking about PCs and PHSOs and, uh, and patrolling. Um, my, my predecessor introduced uh, single patrolling, uh, something I support. Uh, there's also something which I think research has shown can work, which is called proximity patrolling, which is exactly what you said. Basically, to, even if there's a danger in an area, uh, you patrol a different side of the street, and number one is that you've got a chance to talk to people. So, I mean, I know that often people say, well, actually, all they're doing is walking the streets and talking. Well, if you walk in the streets with somebody, you do have to talk from time to time. Uh, What I'd encourage them to do is not to ignore things and to talk to other people, too. Uh, But your point about that proximity patrolling, uh, first of all, it is a tactic that we use. I have seen it, but probably we could do more about it. And really, following the riots, one of the things we had to manage was that the, uh, the single patrolling deteriorated in terms of how much we were doing it, and we are now getting back to a stage where... I think we can rely on uh, doing that. But I have to say it's a debate we have with our own staff, because of course they're the ones who take the consequences if, if I or we get that wrong. Uh, we do do risk assessments, we try and get it right, uh, but I'm not against the, the broad thrust uh, of the point you made.
0: Thank you very much indeed. Um, I, unfortunately, I need to uh, draw proceedings to a close now. Um, can I, just as a final announcement, ask you all to remain in your seats uh, while we leave the stage in a moment or two. I'd like to thank you all for coming here today uh, and for participating and engaging in uh, robust discussion. Uh, I'm very grateful to you. As I said at the outset, um, this was a, uh, a public lecture under the auspices of British Government LRC, LSE, and I do hope that you will look at the website and come to future events. Um, I'd particularly like you to join me in thanking the Commissioner for his presentation this evening and for...